Uh, I, I've never been to a, a class reunion of any kind. Um, I probably just don't get invited. No, I don't know. what. I've never seen an invitation to one. Uh, as some of you see the invitations, maybe you show up, maybe you don't. I was talking with some brothers uh, just yesterday, and they were just talking about how they get re- invitations, and they just don't want to go. Um, so that's always an interesting thing. Uh, but if you were to show up, I think one of the interesting things about it, and maybe one of the reasons why you might show up, is to just see whatever happened to so-and-so, whatever happened to that strong athletic jock that used to pick on people. Where, where is he now? Uh, what happened to homecoming queen? You know, what, what is she doing now? Uh, what happened to uh, the little nerd that used to sit in the, the back and no one remembered their name? Uh, you know, where, where is he now? Um, and you might be surprised when you go that some people, their fortunes have reversed. Some people that you thought would be the most successful are now maybe the least successful. Uh, some people that looked a certain way look a very different way. Uh, some people don't age at all. Some people age fast. Those kind of things, those kind of surprises. There will come a time where we will uh, be gathered before the Lord from every tribe and from every nation in this grand reunion. And as we look around us, we might feel disheartened that some people we thought for sure would be there aren't there. And so we visit again the theme that we visited last week where Paul teaches Timothy, some are going to depart from the faith. We are not going to be surprised in that reunion of the people that we knew wouldn't be there. We're not going to go, what happened to that flaming atheist that lived next door and used to cuss God out all the time? We're not going to wonder that, but we might wonder, what happened to that brother that served with me in the ministry? What happened to that sister that taught me the ways of the faith? And if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have raised my children in the gospel. Where is she? I don't see her. Oh, she's not here. Who do you mean she's not here? That will be the surprise. That will be the shock. And that is what Paul is telling Timothy to prepare the church at Ephesus for. The fact that some will depart from the faith who you, were, you would think would stay in the faith, that would remain in the faith. Some of these are teachers of the faith. And they lose it because they add to it. They walk away from it. And uh, the biggest surprise of them all is it's not just congregants but pastors. It's not just the hearers of the word, but the teachers of the word themselves that can easily lose it and not make the reunion. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. If you need a Bible, lift your hand up and uh, Dave will bring you a copy of God's word. 1 Timothy is in the New Testament. It's toward the end. Um, It's, it's in the T's. First <laughs> uh, Timothy is simply, a, a, it's a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and it's the first of the two that we have. That's why it's called First Timothy. And we find ourselves in chapter 4, right at the end, that final paragraph of chapter 4, where Paul finished teaching him that people are going to depart from the faith. How do you get people to not depart from the faith? Steer away from irreverent myths, silly myths, but train yourself in godliness. Hold to the trustworthy teaching, verse 9. Fully accept it and strive in it. Work at it. For to this end we toil and strive. You set your hope on the living God, the Savior of all people. Are you going to be there, gathered with the people that God saves? If you're going to be there, it takes toil and it takes work. 
Well, that's interesting. We don't get that all the time because the gospel is by grace, right? Not by works. But here Paul is emphasizing works, and if works don't show up on this side of eternity, you may not show up on that side of eternity. Well, that's strange. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to read this paragraph, 11 through 16, where he emphasizes this again. He pushes it again. And at first I thought, well, we should have just covered this last week. But I'm, I'm really, sometimes one and done is not enough. And what Paul continues to emphasize, we want to continue to emphasize. And we don't want to visit something on a Sunday, go, wow, and then just move on too quickly. So I'm, actually, I'm happy that we're going to take this time to unpack What isn't really a different point, but him massaging it and pushing it further. And let this bother you for a second. Let's read verses 11 through 16, that last paragraph of chapter 4. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Now here it is. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Have you ever heard the message, save yourself? Yeah, we've heard it from false teachers. <laughs> we know that's a bad gospel. Save yourself. God is waiting for you to do it. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Well, how do we know that's not what Paul means? Well, because of Paul's teachings everywhere else, that we are saved by grace, and we're not saved by works. And it's not just Paul's teaching, it's Jesus' teaching. The gospels make this clear. Peter makes this clear. The whole entire Old Testament makes this clear. Israel didn't make themselves a nation. Israel didn't get themselves out of Egypt. It's it's always been by grace. Abraham didn't make up the faith. God called him out of Ur and said, go, and I'm going to do something with you. It's always God's action that starts things off and continues things pushing through. So what can Paul mean by telling Timothy that if you persist in it, if you work at this, if you immerse yourself in these things, practice these things, keep a close watch on yourself, keep a close watch on the teaching, if you persist in these things, then you will save yourself and your hearers. Well, I think if we too quickly emphasize grace and we don't understand works, we run into an issue that Paul is trying to avoid, and might it be Christian Fellowship Church? That those who emphasize a gospel of grace to the exclusion of works are the ones that fall away. What I want to do is back us up, start at verse 11. What does he mean, practice these things, command these things? What is he talking about? And then let's work our way toward that uh, difficult verse of verse 16. And hopefully by the time we're done, it's really not all that difficult. Paul is writing to Timothy to save his hearers. He warns him at the first verse of chapter 4, the Spirit expressly states in later times, some will depart. So this entire, these verses all the way through this entire chapter is Paul trying to get Timothy to save the people so that they don't depart from the faith. And he's trying to save Timothy himself from departing from the faith. He knows Timothy is not immune to falling away. 
And so he's writing these verses to save the people so that when there's this big gathering in heaven on that day, we won't look around and go, man, where's Pastor Lucas? How do we get there? How do we make sure that we're there at the reunion? Because that's not one we want to dodge. Well, he gives us these instructions. And it starts with teaching. It says in verse 11, command and teach these things. You'll notice here that Timothy is to function in the church, not just in the role of a teacher. So it's not just throw a bunch of information at people, but as a commander, tell people what they're supposed to do. It's not enough to stand up there and say, in the ancient text, here's what Paul was saying, the Greek word originally was this and that, and just kind of have like a, a geek fest on theology. But what does theology say about what you're supposed to actually do? Command it. Tell people what they're supposed to be doing. And I think pastors and elders that are worth their salt are not there simply to teach. Of course, you've got people that want to get in the saddle and give a bunch of commands, and they're not teachers, and that's not right. It's together with teaching. It's how teaching feeds the commands. Teaching shows us what we're supposed to be doing. And so the teaching rolls out in commands. And for many of us, we're very comfortable with teaching. We're very comfortable with taking notes. We're very comfortable with filling out our journals and filling out the sermon insert in the bulletin. And we're very comfortable with uh, regurgitating facts and growth group. But we may not be as comfortable with following commands. So one of the reasons why we place such a high price tag on membership is because membership is saying, I don't want to just be somebody who comes for the teaching. I want to be somebody who comes for the commands. I'm a part of this group. I'm a part of this army. I'm a part of this family. And every family has household rules. And I want to follow those rules. And I want to help shape those rules and shape each other into what we're supposed to be doing because I believe that there should be commands. And I don't want to sit on the outside of it. So he urges Timothy not to be sort of softly teaching things and putting things out there. Look, you could believe this, not believe this, whatever, but, you know, it's Sunday, I'm supposed to give a sermon. But to command things. And he anticipates that Timothy might have objections. Some people are not going to take commands from me because I'm so young. And we don't know exactly how young Timothy was. And as I read this verse, I'm so grateful. When I came here in 2007 as a 28-year-old, I didn't feel despised because I was young. And I, I still am young. I was just joking with another pastor at the a conference I was just at this weekend. And uh, he asked, what, what did Trinity ask you to teach in the doctoral program? I said, they wanted me to teach preaching over the long haul. And then I just cracked a joke. I'm like, I'm 41 years old, you know, the long haul. So I brought in guests, you know, that have been at it. Some of them been at it a lot longer than I have. So we don't know exactly how old Timothy was, obviously a lot younger than Paul, uh, probably a lot younger than the elders that Timothy is commanding in uh, Ephesus. But he says in verse 12, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, so what do you do about it? Do you go, Paul sent me here. You got a problem with me, you got a problem with Paul. Does he say, I am an apostolic delegate, that's my title and wear it on like a brass plate? No, that's not what he tells them to do. How do you get people to follow you even if you're younger than them? Set the believers an example. That's how you do it. It's not by lording your title over them. It's by showing them you live the stuff you're talking about. Be an example in the way you talk, 
in the way you behave, in the way you love people, in the faith that you claim as you teach it, live it, and you do it in purity. Well, that's a high bar. And I want to commend to you that this doesn't just work for apostolic delegates and it doesn't just work that way for pastors. It works that way for you in any role that you have where you're teaching the little ones downstairs, where you're leading a small group, where you're trying to evangelize your coworker, parents that are in the home and you're trying to raise kids. It's not just, I'm your dad, you must listen to me. They're watching. The connection between what you say is true and how you live your life. And the more those two things are connected, the more your commands will land with weight. But just demanding a hearing, even from your own kids, because you've got the checkbook. You've got the key to their room. You've got the cell phone contract. Well, yeah, those things are true. And once in a while, the kids may need to be reminded of that. But that is not how we get our children to follow. That is not how a pastor gets a congregation to follow. It's like, you must listen to me. The Constitution says... But to say, if, if, if anything I say doesn't show up in my life, you need to talk to me about that. You need to talk to me about that. Some of you, most of you were here earlier when they talked about whatever, the collection, the pastor appreciation thing. And first of all, not my idea. This, those of you who are new, interesting, pastor sets up a month all to himself. No, I didn't. <laughs> Did not. Much more valuable than gift cards, the wonderful dinners that you all provide providing. It's just an encouraging note about how anything I do in terms of what I say and how I live has impacted you at all because I keep those and I treasure those. Because otherwise I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. And if I'm not doing it the way I'm supposed to be doing it, then you all won't do it the way you're supposed to do it. And in the end, none of us will make it. That's what, he's, that's what he's barreling down toward in verse 16. You want to make it? Save yourself? He's talking to Timothy, so it, 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 the parallel is me in this situation. Not that I'm an apostolic delegate, but in terms of someone whose role is teaching and commanding things in a church, together with the elders, of course. If I'm going to save myself, and I'm going to make the reunion, and I'm going to make sure that the people that are listening to me make it, it starts with commanding and teaching things, that are going to be listened to, not simply because you wear a title, but because you are exemplary in your speech and in your conduct and in your love and in your faith and in purity. And those things don't come by accident. How do they come? Well, it starts with the Word of God. I know that's a Sunday school answer, but there's no need to be innovative here. What we need is this program. What you need is Scripture. And all the programs that a church rolls out, where is Scripture in it? Where is Scripture there? How is the Word central to it? Because that's exactly what he prescribes. If you're going to make it, if you're going to be the kind of person that doesn't just command and teach things, but people listen to it, people are affected by it, people are changed by it, because you live it, well, how do you make that connection between what you teach and how you live, what you preach and how you behave? Well, it starts with Scripture in verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. If you've ever come here, uh, maybe you're somewhat new here, and you wonder, wow, they read Scripture a lot in service. We start with Scripture, 
after announcements. We kind of get announcements out of the way. Then we start with Scripture as the call to worship. We're not going to just start, Lord, we love you. God speaks first. Then we respond to him with songs that are based on Scripture. And we, I, you know, me and the elders, we take a fine-tooth comb through the lyrics of those songs. We want you to sing songs that match what Scripture says. And so God speaks to us in Scripture. We sing Scripture back to God. Then someone stands up here and reads another portion of Scripture before we sing another song, or before we give another portion of Scripture is read to shape us and form us into even how we give. And then I come up here and I don't give blog points and random thoughts from throughout the week that I collected. I'm not giving you my journal entries. I'm giving you Scripture. And so the reason why we read Scripture so much is, first of all, because Paul says so. Devote yourself to it. Don't let it be kind of a side thing. Let's read Scripture, get it out of the way, and then let's all do something else. No, it's Scripture, 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 Scripture. And so this, of course, if it, as I've stated, if this is how it works from a pastor to a congregation, because a pastor is a teacher and commanding things, this is how it works in a household with parents to children. And so it's not enough to just tell your kids what you demand of them, the kind of grades that you want to see. You've got to get the family around Scripture. Read it. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Like, Timothy, I know you read it on your own, but you've got to stand up there and read Scripture to the people. And brothers and sisters, when we do that as a church, we don't hype it up a lot. We're not like, and here's the Scripture reader. You know, like, there's no bells and whistles. Someone stands up here, opens the Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, we normally put it up on the screen for you. It's read to you. And it's on you to bring something to that, to be attentive to that, to be shaped and informed by that reading of Scripture. We're trying to follow what Paul is telling Timothy should be central in the church. We want to make sure that when Scripture is being read, that is being read to you and that you're following, around, following along in that reading. There's a tradition in many churches that when the reading is over, the reader will say, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation will say, thanks be to God. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should start doing that every time. Just as a, a cue to say, yeah, I heard that. And I thank God for that. I was paying attention. I wasn't texting. Now, of course, you can still text and like, you hear, you know, oh, thanks be to God. I mean, I get it. It's not the cure-all solution, but I wonder if that would just help us focus. This wasn't just a reading of some ancient text that is irrelevant to my life, but it's the Word of God Himself. There's authority in what was just read, and I'm thankful for it. And like we learned before, if you're thankful for something, then that means you're in the right place. It's hard to reject something that you're thankful for. And it's not just reading it, it's the exhortation, it's the teaching. And so the reason why we have a sermon, the reason why it's the longest part, and I'm thankful for a church that really doesn't time me that strictly, because we enjoy the Word. We just want to be in it, we want to hear it, not just read it, but receive an exhortation. Here's what you should do, and here's what it means, the teaching. Now, as he teaches Timothy that the Word of God is central and that the reading of the Word of God, the exhortation according to the Word of God, the teaching of Scripture itself, 
is central to the life of the church because that's what's going to keep you, that's what's going to make you not depart from the faith. He then re-emphasizes the fact that you have to model these things, not just because you mandate them, but you have to model them, and you have to model what Scripture says. So in other words, he starts with a rhythm. He says, if you're going to make it, you have to mandate things, command and teach things. People aren't going to listen to what you mandate unless you model it. So you have to model what you mandate in order for people to follow it. It's not just mandating, but modeling. But then he returns to Scripture because he's saying, but don't forget, you have nothing to model if there are no mandates. What are you modeling? Well, the mandates of Scripture. So this this back and forth continues to make sure you're connecting what is taught to how you're living. Because what you believe should shape how you behave. What you learn should inform how you live. And when you lose that connection, you've lost it. That's the disconnect. And so if we believe that we're saved by grace and we believe that we're saved by mercy and we don't live like we're saved by grace and we don't live like we're saved by mercy, then we don't really believe what grace is. We don't understand what happened there when we say I was saved by grace. It's like I was freed from the jail cell, but I still hang out in the prison. I still eat in the prison cafeteria. I still eat prison food. I still wear prison clothing. And you could talk about freedom, and the door might be open, but you never left. So the connection between what we say and how we live is the important piece for not departing from the faith. And so he wants us to proclaim it in church, to gather around it, Because we have to learn what the mandates are, but it's not enough just to learn what the mandates are. We have to model those mandates, and what it takes is practice. Some of you don't feel like model Christians. That's okay. I don't feel like a model Christian. But what does it take? It takes practice, not perfection. In verse 15, he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. We're familiar with the phrase, practice makes perfect, but I think the scriptural truth is practice makes progress. Because he says, you practice these things, you immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Timothy's not perfect. None of us here is arrived. But we move forward. We're not the same as we were when we first gave our lives to Christ. We should be a more mature husband now than when we first said, I do. The next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, there should be progress happening. I should be progressing. You say, well... Pastor, you used to preach this, but now you actually preach more of that. Yeah, hopefully I'm progressing in my doctrine. Hopefully I'm progressing in my ability to handle the Word, and hopefully I'm progressing in my ability to live it out when I go home. I think one of the problems with churches, with their own TV preacher, like he's up on the screen, I understand a lot of why that's happening. But if a congregation gathers week after week and all they know about the pastor is his face up on a screen, all they know about a pastor is his, the way he expounds Scripture, how can they monitor his progress? And how can they receive his mandates by watching his example if the example piece is cut out? Well, there may be other ways of going about it, but that would be the challenge 
And even in a church this size, even for us, that's, that's the challenge. How do, we, how do we live among each other so that we can watch each other? Not with eyes like we can't wait to, I can't wait to catch you. I can't wait to see pastor mess up. But, but to help each other progress and to be encouraged by one another because when we see each other's progress, it informs how we live. That's what he's telling Timothy. If you practice these things and progress in the faith, then you will save yourself and those who listen to you. It spills out to other people. The more you connect the mandates to the modeling, the more the people that you proclaim the gospel to or teach scripture to around you, whether it's your coworker, your kids, that ministry will be more effective when you make those connections yourself and they are able to see that you are progressing in the faith. So verse 14 reminds him, you have a position to teach. You've been given a gift. Don't neglect it. That gift was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. We don't know exactly what's happening there, but it sounds like he has this gift of leadership, this gift of teaching. Why do I say that? Because that's what he's on about. I don't think it's the gift of hospitality. Not because there's anything wrong with that, but where's hospitality in the book, right? What has he been talking about? Teach these things. Command these things. Teach it. Protect sound doctrine. Otherwise, people depart from the faith. So teaching, teaching, teaching. I think the gift relates to that probably. The commanding, the exhortation, the teaching. A gift that's been given to him. He wasn't born with it. And it was made clear when elders came around him, laid hands on him. Just like in 2007, 2008, 2007 when I came here and and Pastor Ortloff and the elders laid their hands on me. There is something about the laying on of hands. That's why we do that with members coming in. It's this community approval that God is doing something here. Don't you forget it. So there's your position, your position that allows you to command and give mandates. That's verse 14, and then 15 is, but don't forget you have to model it. Again, the mandates and the modeling, the learning and the living, the doctrine and the behavior, the beliefs and the behavior. And when we lose that, we lose it. He emphasizes it again in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. There it is again. Your life and what you teach. While you live and what you're learning. And we need to do what? Practice it. Immerse yourself in it. The the Greek behind immerse yourself in it is just be in it. (laughs) Be in it. just, Just surround yourself in it all the time. There are so many ways to do that now. When you can't physically meet with someone who's discipling you or someone that you're discipling, you've got phone calls, texting, FaceTime, Zoom calls, Google Hangouts. There's no excuse to not meet and talk and and monitor each other's progress. There's no shortage of learning to be had online with uh, all the Gospel Coalition resources. And if you miss a sermon, the sermon gets put up online and there's videos and YouTubes and Vimeos. There's panel discussions and Q&As and debates. There's so much information to be had. We have no reason to spend 80% of our bandwidth on Netflix. When there's so much out there in terms of books, audio books, sermons, articles, blogs, podcasts, for you to learn about the Christian faith. So we stay immersed in it, we practice it, 
because that's the only way you will make progress. If we look up and we discover we haven't been making progress, it is because we haven't been practicing. So you don't pray that great? Start, start praying what you think is a weak prayer. And eventually that weak prayer becomes a more like a toddler level prayer. You know, you went from infant to toddler, and that's okay. A toddler's not expected to run around and skateboard like a teenager. He's a toddler. But eventually you get there. And it takes practice, and it takes repetition, and it takes other people coming around you and maybe holding your hand. See, one leg in front of the other. That's the, that's the, um, the way it works to make that progress and to be intentional about that practice. So, what you believe shapes how you behave. What you believe informs how you behave. And then he ends with this, this, this verse By doing that, by making that connection, you save yourself and you save your hearers. What does he mean by that? Well, there's two pieces to it. It's the fact that by doing this, Timothy will save himself. I think of that myself and I'm like, okay, if I'm going to make it to the end, that means what I preach has to be lived in my life. Many teachers in seminary, many people who train pastors will tell pastors, don't do your devotions in the passage you're going to preach because that's work and that you're preparing that for other people. You also have to have a separate devotional life for scripture that shapes you and, and informs you. And I kind of get that, but I mostly don't because that means when I'm in sermon mode, I'm investigating the text for you and cutting me out of it. But, but what happens to happen is I investigate the text for me because if I can't live this, I can't stand up here and ask you to live it. And so anytime we're in a passage, it's not just what's a verse I can drop on my kids. It's what's a verse that's going to shape me so that the kids can see that I model the mandate that we're talking about here. And then what you teach the kids will have an effect. And so first, it saves me because it demonstrates that I actually believe what I'm talking about. So what Paul is not saying Paul is not saying that the gospel is Christ saves you after you work. Work first and then Christ will save you. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is also not saying Christ will save you with your work, together with your work. It works together. Well, that's pretty Catholic. But I think if you read through the New Testament, uh, you will see that the two things don't go hand in hand to produce something. But instead, one precedes the other and produces the other. Grace comes first, but grace isn't a get out of jail and see you later, go do whatever you want. Grace takes you out of jail, takes off the prison clothing, and puts on a different outfit. It's to put on Christ. It's not just cast off the works of darkness, but clothe yourself with Christ is the New Testament language, Romans 13, to be specific. And so grace isn't actually grace if you're still the same. Yeah, you cleaned up a couple habits and you started adopting some new habits like coming to church or whatever. And that, Those are great things, but if there wasn't a radical interior change inside of you, then the clothes haven't changed. So if you look at the Old Testament, God saved Israel out of Egypt by His grace. They didn't get out of Egypt on their own, but not all of them made it to the promised land. Not all of them made the reunion, right? And throughout Scripture, you see 
God, Yahweh, reminding Moses, teach the people, you have to do these sacrifices, you have to do these offerings, you have to live a certain way, because if you don't, you're out. Well, he teaches that the problem was, even though they were rescued out of Egypt and expected to live a certain way in the wilderness, the reason why they wandered so long in the wilderness, they had stony hearts that are really unable to be changed from the inside out. They had exterior laws saying, live like this, live like this, live like this, and there was nothing happening inside of them to make them live like that. But God promised, your stony hearts, I'm going to rip those out, I'm going to cut those out, and I'm going to implant new hearts in you that are fleshy hearts that pump the blood of my grace inside of you so that now you can do it. So God is telling them, I see the problem. I'm not unaware of the problem. And I'm going to solve the problem with Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus comes and his sermon on the mount is, you've heard it said, this law. You've heard it said, that law. But I tell you, forget the law. No, he says, I tell you, you need to one-up the Pharisees. If your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're out. What? The Pharisees were really strict. He's talking about that interior change. It's not what goes inside the mouth, it's what comes out of the heart. The inside change that has to happen. You can keep all the religious rules and not be a changed person. But a changed person keeps rules. A changed person cares about God's do's and don'ts. That God says, this makes me mad. This pleases me. And a changed person goes, okay, I don't want to displease you. I want to please you. That's do's and don'ts. And it takes practice. We'll put this verse up on the screen really briefly. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, verse 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is reminding them of this uh, very truth. If we don't get it up there, I'll just read it to you. Um, but in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 and 13, it's a familiar verse for many of us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, what does he want? Obedience, right? You see it in the second line there? As you've always obeyed, continue to obey. But instead of saying obey the second time, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Just pause it there a second. Don't, don't go to the next slide yet. Paul wants the Philippians to work out their salvation in fear and trembling like, am I going to make it? <laughs> he doesn't want to rob assurance, but he wants to make sure that you're not cheapening grace by going, I got, I'm in, I got the heaven ticket. I can fall asleep on the train and I'll wake up one day and I'll be there. Or I can go to the, a different compartment of the train and do naughty things without care because the engineer is going to get me there anyway. And one day you wake off and you're off the train. One day you wake up and you're like, oops, I got on the wrong train. I went on the cheap grace train and I wasn't actually the gospel train. So he wants you to fear and tremble a little bit and recognize that obedience has to play a role in your life. But then look at the next piece. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you're obedient, what made you obedient, God? If you obey a command, how were you able to obey that command, God? If you even feel like obeying a command, if you hear a sermon tell you to do something, if you hear a mandate, what makes you go, yeah, I want to follow that mandate. I might not be good at it now, but I want to immerse myself in it. I want to practice that. I want to persist in it so I can progress in that mandate. What makes you even want to do that? Where does the motivation come from? God does it. God puts it in you. So again, you see Paul emphasizing you have to obey, guys, but remember, obedience comes from God. And if you feel like there's just no gas in the tank and you just don't want to obey, you don't care what the rules are, maybe your first step is come and know God first. 
And that starts with repentance. God, I can't earn this. I can't prove it. I can't do it. I need you to come and do a work in my life. And if that's a genuine prayer, he responds and he changes you. In fact, if you pray that, he already started that change in you. Now, that's how we view ourselves, our own salvation. I am saved by grace. I'm saved because God is doing a work in me. But if God is actually doing a work in me, it shows out through works. This is why James says, if you have faith, show me your works. James isn't trying to add works to salvation. He's just saying the litmus test to demonstrate that your faith is not counterfeit is works. So when you take that pen across the dollar bill and see what color it changes to, if it's genuine you know you've got the right dollar bill, right? It's not counterfeit. James is just saying, if it's not a counterfeit faith, works will show up in your life. If you're not changing and you're not progressing and you're not obeying and you're not working out your salvation, then that means there's not something happening inside of you and you still have a heart of stone. And if that's true for you, it's true for your hearers. If I'm preaching to you as a congregation, or you're preaching to your kids, or you're preaching to people that you're discipling, or you're explaining and exhorting Scripture to people that you work with, whatever the case may be, where you're taking mandates from Scripture and trying to get people to understand it, the way to make that effective and save other people is to make sure you grapple with what Scripture actually says and that you make the connection between belief and behavior. And if you make the connection between belief and behavior, then they will respond. One more verse to show you that Jesus taught this first in Matthew 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 14 to 16. Very familiar verse again. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Uh, next slide. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So this is evangelism. You're, 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 you're proclaiming the gospel, the truth, the mandates of the gospel to people. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And what's their response if you're not just talking the talk, but you're actually walking the walk? Well, then their response is they'll give glory to the Father. So in this passage, we often use that. You've got to get out there and preach. You've got to get out there and teach. Well, that's true, but it's more than that. You've got to get out there and teach stuff that you're actually living. You need to put on display the fact that God is doing good work in you. And when that's happening, then people will come. Then people will give glory to God. We might get very frustrated when we're in evangelistic situations talking to people about the gospel and we're not seeing changes. I took my coworker to lunch and I explained the gospel. I drew it out on the napkin. Yeah, but how does the coworker see that gospel living out in you in the conversations around the water cooler? When the CEO asks you to cheat, to cut corners, to get a sale. Do they see the consistency that this gospel actually changed this person? They will lose their job before they disobey a mandate that they believe Scripture is putting on their lives. And when they see that, the result is you save yourself and your hearers. We can easily get frustrated with our kids. We can easily get frustrated with people that we've been entrusted to disciple. We need to make sure that we're reflecting on ourselves first and not go, I'm teaching good stuff, how come they're not responding? But instead, I'm teaching good stuff how am I living that good stuff? And then we can pray, Lord, allow the modeling of the mandates to shape my children. That's my prayer for us as a church. I hope, I hope 
knowing that I'm not perfect, <laughs> knowing that I have, definitely have not arrived yet, I hope that as I persist in the things that we're talking about, that you'll see a difference and that it'll make a difference in you. And I hope that that continues to spill out because every single one of you is a minister of the gospel. Every single one of you is a light shining in a dark place. And it's not enough to give people content. We need to give people character. Let's pray.